Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 14th of June 2021 and this is episode 212. On today's podcast, I talk to author Philip Bujak about his latest book on Lieutenant Colonel John Sherwood Kelly VC and his career during the Great War. This book is published by Pen and Sword. This interview was recorded in December last year, so Philip's references to next year mean the summer of 2021. Philip spoke to me over the interweb from his home in East Sussex. Philip, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War. Um, okay, yeah, pleasure to be here. I, uh, I've i been a career teacher really all my life. I taught history um, after university in uh, a number of schools and uh, in one of my incarnations a school in in South Norfolk uh, there was a local study group called the Friends of the Great War and it was run by a chap called uh, Gerald Glidden uh, uh, of Glidden Books uh, which was a East Anglian publisher and he he himself produced a, a really superb book on on the Somme um, and we used to meet convivially once a month and talk about various subjects and from one of those meetings um, a notion of having a uh, book produced by all of us where we all took on a couple of chapters uh, was put forward and we produced Norfolk and Suffolk in the Great War um, and various people studied the impact on agriculture, um, the bringing in the harvest and all, all of the usual sort of things and, and some of us looked at the Norfolk Regiment and the Suffolk Regiment and I uh, picked the Victoria Cross winners and it was that was the route of stumbling and it really was a stumble uh, across, across Kelly who really at that stage in the late 1970s, early 1980s was unheard of even though he was a Victoria Cross winner uh, with the Norfolks. So why write a book on Kelly? Well, it's pretty uh, like a red rag to the bull, really. I mean, as soon as uh, I started to do a little bit of research to include him in the book, um, I realised that uh, he, he had a bad reputation. He had been deliberately um, uh, smokescreened, let's say, uh, by, by the Norfolk Regiment, I have to say. I found it incredibly difficult to access material and was rebuffed um, fairly, fairly briskly. Um, and so any anybody with a, a journalistic interest or, or you know, got, got a scent of a smell of a story of some, uh, something of interest. Um, you know, there, there were plenty of uh, biographies of all the, the well-known winners of, of the VC amongst those, those two very large regiments um, and really only a sentence or two about Kelly. Um, and I think the really the, the clincher was um, wandering through the University of East Anglia Library and stumbling across a book called The Day we almost bombed Moscow and I thought it was some Cold War uh, account of you know Dr Strangelove you know we may nearly press the button on the B-52 but it wasn't it was uh, an account of an artillery gun um, with a British army unit um, about 40 miles apparently from Moscow in 1919 need I say any more <laughs> and uh, there we were then, then then that led me to to find that uh, the unit uh, and the group that were uh, had advanced furthest in northern russia was led by uh, jack kelly so kelly is obviously an intriguing character so could we start by talking about his early life where he was born his background his family his brothers education and character as a child yes very very important i i did say that i was a teacher i was also 
you know, a history teacher in a boarding school. Uh, and so um, rather horsemen riding by, Delderfield or uh, Mr. Chips, you know, I lived in a wing with, with 85 uh, boys uh, and was a, a boarding housemaster. And you know, one of the things that you discover is the characters of, of young men are very intrinsically linked to their relations with their parents and their experiences up to that age. Um, I was only a young teacher, but it, it was pretty obvious that to understand behavior, you need to understand experience. And this uh, was at the same time as I was trying to understand uh, this, this person called Jack Kelly, who I didn't really know anything about at all. Um, and uh, as I researched, I found that he, he had, was a, one of 10 children uh, of a father who had been an emigre son, uh, in, in so far as his grand, Kelly's grandfather had, had fought with the British army in the Crimea and then retired to South Africa as part of the colonial expansion of the British Empire and he'd ended up as a land agent this is this is Kelly's grandfather as a land agent in the Transkei and um, the Transkei is is where uh, Mandela came from it's the, the sort of Zulu homeland it's beautiful and wild um, and uh, really I suppose Kelly in his own way was beautiful and, and wild in temperament um, and the family grew up there and he was born in 1880 and he was a twin and uh, his brother was called Herbert and they were both born on the 13th of January 1880 so come next month it's 140 years uh, that they were born in in the Transkei. Uh, ten children uh, Irish background obviously with the with the surname. Um, his father very tough um, uncompromising um, I, I suppose you could even go so far as to say fairly brutal uh, in terms of discipline and it was pretty pretty apparent that, that Jack became uh, quite an unmanageable child from a fairly early age and I say apparent this is from uh, the evidence of, of letters and, and accounts written later by some of his brothers and sisters um, uh, but the key event really there were two key events in his early life as a child one was the uh, tragic death of his mother um, who uh, had an accident in the Polian trap that fell on top of her and killed her and there's a, a brass plaque in a small church near where where the family lived in Lady Freer um, Sir Henry Bartle Freer was the was the governor of uh, South Africa at one point and uh, that I think the the township was named after his wife so Lady Freer uh, in this plaque it says in loving rem- remembrance of Emily Jane Kelly who died at Lady Freer from injuries on the 8th of August 1892 from the effects of a car accident she was a true Christian noble fond loving affectionate mother and a staunch friend uh, I expected that to be signed uh, by his father but it was signed Jack now Jack was 12 at the time so I thought this was incredibly unusual and moving for a 12 year old to have written these words and for a plaque to be put up I think it should indicate I think to anybody the strength of the relationship between Jack and his mother and there she was uh, very cruelly ripped away but the key phrase was from me was a staunch friend I don't really know what that means 140 years on um, but I suspect it means that uh, she was there to protect him from a good beating uh, I, I suspect it means that she was there um, trying to try to guard him from uh, his, his father uh, and prior, probably trying to understand his 
temperament and character i'm uh, this these are all assumptions of course you know as historians we don't like assumptions but we really haven't got much choice we have got a clue there in a staunch friend and the second thing that happened to him was his brother died the following year um we, we don't know what it was an illness of some kind smallpox or something perhaps so within the space of 12 months he lost his mother a staunch friend and he lost his twin and within a year he's packed off to boarding school so what what, what happens to him after boarding school and up until 1912 and we'll come to the significant 1912 in a minute yeah well he he is expelled uh, fairly regularly from two or three schools as you might expect he was um you know out riding horses when he should have been doing his latin he was um you know, having punch-ups and uh, a free spirit he and he was sent to uh, some good schools uh grahamstown college um all on the southeast coast of the cape um they're still there now uh, uh, you know and they they now they celebrate his his victoria cross whereas not that many years ago he was unknown and uh, uh, kept in a cupboard on a dusty shelf but he he also went to St Andrews uh, College which is you know very very famous uh, school in South Africa public schools obviously Victorian public schools um, but the discipline didn't work uh, and again I was as I said I was a boarding school housemaster in private schools myself so I know that there there are various levels of very strong discipline that can be applied but uh, especially in the 70s and 80s even when I was at the tail end of you know the the, the old the old schools if you like uh, but it wasn't going to work on Jack so he was expelled and at 16 uh, so this is 1896 uh, he is found uh, riding around South Africa and the trans guy for the Cape Mounted Police and uh, you know, I do have a letter from his father pleading uh, with a friend who had influence with the CMP to take him um, so he he has two or three years doing what he wants probably um, in, in the Cape Mounted Police which is sort of like a local volunteer militia I don't think the discipline would have been uh, as we'd have, you know, expect from a, a regular state police force uh, and then only three or four years later of course we have the Boer War and I mean there's a book to be written just about Jack Jack's experiences in the Boer War he was everywhere he had four medal clasps uh, for you know relief of Lady Smith and Math King and various other things he was if you know he was everywhere and by then he transferred to the Imperial Light Horse and he was thought of as a rough rider you know a messenger uh, dangerous speedy riding all over the place through the most difficult terrain uh, loving the adrenaline and commissioned in the field would you believe now he could only have been um, you know coming up to 20 um, so uh, and then decommissioned in the field if you want to use that phrase he, he was busted down to the ranks again for being uh, not amenable to any form of discipline I think was the phrase that was used at the time um, so he was a great soldier even at that stage providing you didn't need to give him any orders um, and then we, we end the Boer War um, and I suspect he was very listless after that um, directionless um, so from 1902 to 1912 to fill that gap for you um, he's found doing a variety of things um, getting drunk quite a lot uh, having fights on a cricket pitch with his brother um, uh, knocking an umpire of a cricket match unconscious um, and you know cheering and, and rabble rousing slave trading uh, well labor trading as they like to call it but of course it was slave trading working diamond mining in a whole variety a whole succession of things and some wonderful stories that uh, came to me just prior to publication in 2018 um, of uh, not just the cricket matches but uh, um, anecdotes uh, and even one one uh, hundred year old guy who, who almost knew him if you like as from a very young man or certainly knew of his reputation as a young man and he had a reputation in that area 
you know, Grahamstown, Port Elizabeth, Cape Town, that Southeast Cape area, it, he was sort of fairly notorious for his behaviour. Um, and then uh, we, we arrive at 1912 and the Curra Mutiny, and that's what brings... Oh, there'd been a marriage, by the way, or two, uh, somewhere in that period, um, with a millionaireess, and uh, that didn't work out. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you'd have to read the book to find out some of the other stories, but, you know, quite incredible what he what he was prepared to do to his even best friends to set them up. Um, and then he finds himself on his way to, to Northern Ireland. So why does he come to, to what was obviously Ulster, which was part of the United Kingdom at that time? Why does he arrive in, in Britain and then heads to Ulster, sorry that question again. In 1912, he arrives in Great Britain and heads to Ulster. Why did he go there? Well, there was a time when I thought it was uh, out of patriotic zeal and spirit, but uh, on reflection and now having sort of tried to assess his his uh, actions over a long period of time, I think it was more opportunity that, that took him. Uh, I'd like to have thought it was rushing to the defence of the empire, um, but I actually think he was rushing to the chance of opportunity and sensing the smell of uh, a civil war. Um, and he went with his far more sober and far, and I mean that in all senses of the word, and far more grounded elder, bro- uh, elder brother Edward, called the Skipper. And he, he Edward and, and Jack, really spend the next 20 years together. Uh, and in Northern Ireland, I can only assume, and the record goes a bit blank between 1912 and 1914, that they were there having Guinness and, uh, you know, joining the volunteer forces, the Ulster uh, volunteer force, UVF and all of that, um, and preparing for whatever might come around the corner. So that was obviously the, the, the home rule crisis and the threat of the loyalists um, to uh, prevent the home rule bill going through, which came became law in 1914. So right. what was really interesting is, is on the outbreak of war, um, obviously the outbreak of war prevents the civil war, which many people thought was going to happen. He joins the King Edward's horse, but not a unit, um, a local unit, which would have been um, very much of, of the loyalist tradition in that area. Why did he join this particular unit and not maybe a constituent battalion of the 36 Ulster Division? Well, I, I, good question, and I don't know the answer. Um, what I can tell you is he was in London when he enlisted, and um, he gravitated towards King Edward's Light Horse because it was uh, the the catch-all umbrella for colonial and overseas troops, all those that had served in local yeoman. Um, units in New Zealand, Canada, South Africa, Australia, I think they were the main four, um, each had a battalion. And if you look at the uh, cat badge, uh, and many of your listeners will probably be far more an expert this than me, there was a King Edward's Light Horse cat badge for each of those colonial units. So it was King Edward's Horse and then underneath Australia, South Africa, da da da. So I think that was the natural place for someone to go who'd been a colonial soldier um, in the British Army during the Boer War from South Africa. That that was the, the place where he would probably not find it difficult to sign on. I have a s- s- sense that, and again, your listeners w- will, will be able to correct this, that in 1914, um, the recruiting stations in London uh, were, were looking for the, the best of the best to, to take into their regiments. There was no sense of, um, you know, desire for as many, you know, replacement troops as they could get. There was, there was, you know, they could take the P 
pick of the bunch and a um, fairly rough, brutal, um, brusque uh, young man marching through the doors, probably feet first, um, saying, I want to sign up, uh, would have would have probably been given short shift. So I think he ended up in King Edward's Light Horse because that was the natural place for him to be at that time. But it, it, it also was uh, a huge twist of fate because the colonel of the uh, Light Horse in the summer of 1914 uh, was going to end up to, of, to be the brother of the woman he was eventually to marry. So I think when Jack arrived at King Edward's Light Horse, it was a, a mutual attraction, if you like, because at some point he met William Pomeroy Crawford Green, um, a future MP, uh, but a recently returned son of a multimillionaire from New South Wales with three sisters who were also multimillionaires. Now, I, I can't believe that that was lost on Jack. I'm sure he noticed. And it wasn't long before he obviously, you know, became friends with, with the colonel and equally probably started familiarising himself with his family. Now, in 1915, he is commissioned and sent as an officer to Gallipoli uh, during the ill-fated Dardanelles campaign. Could you give us an account of what he did um, when he was there? Yeah, I can. But very quickly, uh, just filling in that gap, he, from King Edward's like horse, he was shuffled off to the Norfolks. And so he ends up in Norwich, the drill hall uh, on the cattle market there. 12th service battalion uh, marching and kicking his heels for a good eight to ten months and somehow he pulled some strings and managed to get himself uh, transferred to the king's own scottish borderers uh, in gallipoli and that was in the may um so fairly early on in uh, 15 fairly early on in the campaign there um so he got out of the norfolks and got out of the 12th service battalion and got to the front lines um, now, why he didn't go to the Western Front, I don't know, but that, that's where he ended up. So he, he ended up as a, a brevet major. Um, now, that was, a, that was how he arrived in rank uh, with the King's Own Scottish Border. So a pretty meteoric promotion, um, no doubt based on his uh, character and some assessment and, and their need at the time. So he serves with the KOSBs, a Scottish regiment, which suited him down to the ground. I mean, this, this, it suited him down to the ground in the trenches, uh, in the front lines. It was a scrap. It was a dreadful, well, we all know uh, the awfulness of the Gallipoli campaign. And a number of things happened there. He uh, um, found it very difficult to get on with his fellow officers, uh, obviously all English officers. And the regimental diary does start off the very first mention of Kelly, a Herculean giant of a man has joined us with a very ripe uh, sense of language. Um, you know, he no doubt arrived with a number of blasphemous words that weren't current parlance in the officers' uh, dugout, but were more suited to the trenches. And so was Jack more suited to the trenches. He might have carried the rank, but the, the, the lads in the trenches loved him to bits. I think he settled in very, probably very quickly, preferred to have his tea and, and wander up and down the trenches than be in, in the mess. Um, and another, uh, so a number of things happened. That was one example of how his, uh, if you like, friction with the uh, senior ranks in a British regiment uh, showed itself. But also his heroism. He, he very quickly gained the sobriquet uh, Bomb Kelly and was collecting bully beef tins and uh, filling them full of nails and, and uh, explosive and catapulting them over to the uh, Turkish lines, standing up in the trenches and, and offering advice to the Turks that probably on, on their lineage and their mothers and so on and and uh, there's a lovely photograph I have a very rare photograph of him standing uh, in the trenches in 1915 uh, probably 
somewhere around October, November. He's got a scarf on. He's very cold. He is huge. I know it's taken from a low angle. Uh, and I know he was six foot four. But, I mean, he, he, is a, he really is a Herculean giant of a man. He's standing in the trenches with his, with his stick. Um, he's got uh, two and a half. Uh, or I can only see clearly two. Uh, but if the, 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 there's a photograph in the book. And, again, some of your listeners will be able to identify things a little bit more for me but uh there he is with his king's own scottish borderers uh forage cap on uh looking across wondering what he's going to do next and uh he was leading raids across to the turkish lines you know um no fear um he then was gassed i think he was gassed twice while he was uh, uh, in gallipoli uh and the probably the third most in- interesting thing is this is where he bumped into uh lucas who was the brigade major for 87 brigade this began kelly's link with 87 brigade really the king's own scottish borderers link that that regiment link um and lucas a future uh, major general was a brigadier there um and a friendship formed and i know this from the fantastic and unique discovery of one of lucas's descendants who sent me excerpts from his handwritten diary that lucas had a great admiration for kelly and his heroism his bravery but also a great deal of tolerance which was not generally uh, a characteristic shared amongst many of the senior officers um not only in that battalion or that regiment or the army and lucas lucas was sort of like a um Obi-Wan Kenobi type of figure for uh, for Kelly. He could protect him and look after him and uh, and again use him to his his uh, best advantage. Now we reach May 1916 and Kelly is given the command of the 1st Battalion Royal Inniskillen Fusiliers. Can you tell us about what he did with the Inniskillens during the Battle of the Somme? Yes, I can. He didn't do very much, unfortunately, because he was, uh, he was drafted in after... So Gallipoli, he comes back home. He uh, gets married... Um, almost the minute he he arrives um, and he marries uh, William Pomeroy Crawford's green sister and uh, they live in Kensington and they dine in Mayfair and uh, he has a you know brand spanking new uniform complete with the DSO which he was awarded uh, for his actions in Gallipoli and his star is well on uh, well on the way up and rising and shining and he's married to Nellie um, and uh, I mustn't forget to mention Nellie because she was certainly a fantastically interesting uh, and tolerant and wonderful woman um you know bore many of the scars that the rest of us wouldn't have been able to cope with with a relationship with jack um so he's married and then again you know he he wants to he's recovering from his gas uh, wounds and gas attacks and then it's uh, off to to the song but he is shot leading a patrol um out in no man's land now uh, the man that brought him back to the inner skills was lucas so lucas is there again because it's 87 brigade again and the king's own scottish borderers first battalion were part of 87 brigade so were the uh inner skill and fusiliers 87 brigade so the link with lucas and the 87 brigade is very very strong so lucas brings him back in says right um have a half half colonel's role take on this battalion for me it's full of very solid heroic brave and sensible irish lads and they need a, a good commander so he's promoted again takes command of that and you know he's shot through the the chest uh, because as colonel of course the first thing you do is lead a, a 12-man patrol into no man's land i mean that's what all colonels were doing at that time but you know i don't think lucas ever forgave him for that i know in the book i mentioned that lucas did try and you know reprimand him and, and tell him this is not going to happen this is not a colonel 
Arsenal's role. He's got to transition uh, in his with his rank, uh, but that's that's just lost on Kelly. So he shot through the left lung um, and is out in no man's land for half a day. And another interesting story: he's rescued by a, a stretcher bearer who crawls out into no man's land and drags him back through through the mud in in the dune. And uh, again, we haven't got time to go into it, but basically sits with him for a couple of days, waiting for him to die. Uh, Kelly doesn't die. Um, and uh, after the war, actually, Kelly goes into politics, tries to go into politics, um, and uh, bumps into this man in, in one of the crowds. Uh, and they, they reunite, and, uh, great through through chance, of course, and, and talk about what happened that, that day. He survives. He's sent back to Treeport Hospital. So he's not there on the first day of the Somme. Had he been there on the first day of the Somme, I think he would have been a casualty. Uh, a fatal casualty. I can't imagine that would have done anything else other than charged charged to the guns. Um, and it's while he's in Treeport, uh, a big clearing hospital behind the lines, that he meets and falls in love with a young nurse. Uh, and that's uh, the second great romance of his life within, well, he'd only been married less than 12 or so. I mean, he didn't hang around, you know. <laughs> that's the first thing you do after you get married, is get shot through the lung and uh, and have an affair. But despite all these uh, challenges to his commanders, he returns in February 1917 um, to command the first Royal in Skinning Fusiliers and leads them during the November 1917 Battle of the Somme where he's awarded a VC. Why, why was he awarded Britain's highest for gallantry? Well, because he deserved it. Uh, I mean, it depends on uh, your, and everybody's got their own definitions of what gallantry means. And I think you have to separate the man from the action. And his citation was for uh, reinvigorating a stalled advance. Uh, the uh, Inniskillen Fusiliers moved through, I think it was the third Welch who had who had crumpled um, in front of some pretty withering machine gun fire uh, from the other side of the Canal du Nord. Um, and uh, you know, which which ran in front of uh, Combray from the British perspective. Uh, and the Royal Inniskillen Fusiliers were the second wave through. Kelly went, moved through the, uh, the the Welsh and picked up the advance. And his own men then buckled in front of this uh, machine gun fire. I think we're talking casualties now approaching 100 uh, very, very quickly, uh, dead and, and wounded as they approached the canal. Um, but Kelly, you know, picked up a Lewis gun um, and charged across a very narrow, uh, well, you couldn't really even call it a bridge. I think it was a footbridge for maybe one or two individuals at a time to walk across. So you didn't really have a lot of room to hide. And he went straight across this bridge, straight into the German positions, uh, killed a number of the, the Germans himself. Uh, and then a sergeant and many of his troops then followed up through and they, they crossed the canal. So he, he, he forged the crossing of the canal to north single-handed, basically, picked up the advance and kept going. Um, and... Um, this was something I wanted to develop in the book, but I just didn't have the time. But experts on Combray will know how far the the uh, Inniskillens got. They 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 were heading towards Combray. They could you know almost smell the the bread in the in the ovens. In this, they they were very exposed very quickly. Um, reached a ridge. Uh, similar occasion, he picked up the advance again through barbed wire. Left flanking attack across the ridge, which he led again personally himself. Um, and his men and younger officers followed him. Another plus German prisoners took the ridge could see Combray and had every intention of carrying on uh, but were told to hold and they held that position for at least 24 36 hours and did not advance and then were asked to withdraw um, now fanciful thinking would say had the reserves been there had the 
this what was supposed to be a diversionary attack um, at Combray in the first place being better resourced and and had you know all, all the had beens all the ifs and in, and what's that could have occurred had there been a, a, another division to move through that would have been a big breakthrough I don't think from the accounts that I've read that the Germans could have could have, could have held that position if the reserves had been able to to move through uh, the the inner skillings position but it wasn't to be and they they were forced to withdraw and just as a side remark here I think what it's going to happen to him in three years sorry uh, in two years time in North Russia where he's again asked to advance uh, on very exposed positions with no flanking support and no reserves um, probably reminded him very much of Combray you know a lot of men good men killed around punching this hole then is that is not then exploited and something very very similar happened in Russia and although I didn't put it in the book on reflection I think I should have done that this would have been a, an almost mirror image of the shock and horror that he he went through in Combray that all of this uh, sacrifice had been for nothing and the same thing happens in Russia except in Russia he withdraws his troops and argues with his superiors and says we're just not doing this is a total waste of of good life so that's what he he was awarded his VC for um, many others deserve the VC and didn't get it many others um, you know killed in action that deserved it and so on we know the luck of the draw um, and he needed a guardian angel and I can only imagine given the number of people that were being put forward for awards that the, and given the reputation that Kelly would have had I can imagine uh, any board sitting c- considering awards for gallantry would have found it very easy to just move him into the pending tray um, but I suspect I'd like to think that Lucas again probably had some influence on on pushing that award through now the war obviously ends in in uh, november 1918 uh, but for but for kelly the war continues he volunteers to go to russia why did he go and what was the aim of the expedition and secondly how did the the expedition unfold and what were the concerts for kelly i think you've already alluded to this yeah okay well i'm going to try and and, and uh keep this <laughs> as condensed as i can i mean yeah the war ends um and he is one of those uh, fighting men who has survived for whom the war gave them a purpose any war uh, serving uh, you know right back from Cape Mounted Police a uniform and a horse or a uniform and a weapon uh, a structure a purpose for living uh, he was never going to be the sort of man that went home and washed the gutters and cut the lawn at a weekend um, and the war ends and I think an awful lot of men uh, and we we perhaps ought to pay more attention um, were at a loss that the war had, had not just been four or five years of their lives it had been everything in their life it had been their entire existence and suddenly it was over and we know about the challenges and problems of returning home but for Kelly he was just looking for the next conflict um obviously I don't want to develop all the the politics and machinations of Churchill's policy in North Russia but in a very brief term the briefest of term uh, Churchill was not going to be sidetracked by Lord Lloyd George and the argument that uh, involvement in another conflict um, in a foreign land um, protecting a, a, a royal family and a regime that uh, at that particular time throughout Europe um, could have triggered a socialist communist left-wing revolt trade union rising in this country but Churchill being Churchill was not going to accept that he he his hatred of communism uh, had, had been there long before his arguments with Stalin and here we are in 1919 he comes up with this ruse 
to uh, bring back the men and the equipment that's stored at Archangel and Murmansk and so on to stop it falling into the hands of the of the communist troops of the Bolshevik troops. Um, and so he calls for volunteers. Now uh, in the book, uh, just before publication, again another diary came to me of a, a young signaller um, uh, uh, that was sent to me, and his diary was quite plain that we were ordered to go. Um, so the rank and file were ordered. Some very you know, unlucky uh, men who had survived were ordered to North Russia and the officers were allowed to volunteer and so on board uh, he, he left Tilbury Docks and actually he, his training very interesting as I look out of my window uh, I'm looking uh, northeast towards uh, Kent and Crowborough is just over the rise and Crowborough camp was the very training area that Kelly and his composite battalion used for training in the conditions that they expected in North Russia now you, you know, it begs the question um, if they're just going to bring back the stores and the munitions around Archangel why were they training on Heath lands and bog lands and and uh, marshes um, but literally he was running around less than 10 miles away from where I am they left on board ship from Tilbury and I have again another very rare photograph in the book which I managed to get from the Hampshires uh, very kindly uh, lent that to me and he's on board with uh, six Victoria Cross winners um, I think um, DSO VC well as many medals as you could put into a huge box and they, they had all volunteered uh, to go um, and you can just see on their shoulders the white star the polar star which was the the badge dedicated to the rescue or relief mission the archangel relief force um and so he went for his own personal reasons i mean he wasn't protecting empire he he, he wasn't bringing back guns and munitions and men he was going because he was a very successful career professional now with a millionaire s wife um and um incidentally a, a very young um uh, mistress uh, with a child at this stage um, and there is evidence to suggest and, and real evidence to suggest through his letters which I've all some letters which I've also uh, been sent that he wanted to get away from both of them, and that the decision to stay with his wife and the millions or to live with uh, Dora his new love and his child was a decision he couldn't face so he, he's quite happy about taking on the German army on the Western Front, but uh, dealing with an emotional question um, was was unfathomable for him. And that was quite an interesting insight into his, his character. Wars made it simple and easy for him. He knew where the battle was and what. So to answer the second part of your question, um, as briefly as I can, the Russian expedition is, is a failure. Um, this, it's exposed in the newspapers because Jack writes, uh, there's one particular action where he carries the body. And this is a man, don't forget, been shot through the lung, gassed. He, he, in fact, in the First World War, he was wounded nine times. So he's got a fairly broken body. He'd, he'd, he'd lost a great uh, bit of his shoulder blade in Gallipoli as well. I've forgotten that from a shell fragment. And, you know, he, he, his body was fairly broken up. And he carries a young captain, 10 miles, a wounded captain, back to, to the lines from this failed uh, attack. Uh, you know, the, the, the Bolshevik troops, okay, you knew they were firing at you, but you also didn't know how loyal the white troops, the white Russian troops, who were supposed to be on your side, supporting the Tsar and the old imperial regime, you had no idea how loyal they were going to be. And uh, mutinies were everywhere. Royal Marines even mutinied, which was in Archangel. And I, I, a large number were actually executed, something people don't know anything about. And there's some very large British semi 
in and around Archangel, Pete not aware. Anyway, to cut a long story short, Jack argued with Grogan, his brigadier uh, in his brigade. He argued and Grogan suggested that he was on side and supported him. And then he went up the line to Ironside, who was the uh, field commander for the whole expedition. This is Ironside of Dunkirk fame in 1940. Ironside quite clearly mis- disliked Kelly intensely. In his diary, he'd already written he this, this officer was shouting on the parade ground, you know, that's the stuff, generally. We'll give them more, blah, blah, blah. You know, not, not something side in tune at all. They were not on the same page. There was no Lucas around to protect him. And the clash with Ironside was pretty monumental. He was withdrawn from the field, Kelly, and sent home. Uh, basically disgrace. Um, but I have highlighted in the book here something to uh, mention to you at this particular stage. Um, one Hampshire's sergeant in his diary said of Jack, he said he's not going to get any more of his men or officers killed for the sake of this effing country. Um, and, and, and by that con- effing country, you can take your pick as to whether that means Britain or Russia. Uh, I suspect it's Russia, but you know, one has to maybe factor in that he'd had enough of stupid decisions as, as he saw them being made around him and men being sacrificed. So he dispatches a letter or two to the Daily Express and the Times from his boat. There's another whole interesting side scandal there there's no way I can tell you that Jack could have written those letters personally they were written by somebody else Um, there was I came across a group of very wealthy South Africans who uh, wanted independence of South Africa and who had a definite dislike of Churchill and these letters were designed to bring Churchill down expose the Churchill plan and the plot um, and it hit the newspapers there happened to be a trade union congress going on at the time so you know it was a massive scandal Um, and you've only got to look at the newspapers for September 13th, 10th, 12th, 13th and the 20 something or other of 1919 to see Kelly's letters were front page news uh, and ran for 1,500 words, none of which Jack, uh, apart from the quotations, would have been able to write. I have one letter that Jack wrote to Dora and it's um, poorly spelt, spelt phonetically. His vocabulary is very short and brief and these letters were written by uh, an expert writer of letters for a specific reason. And I suspect Jack was being used as a battering ram for other purposes. So it was a disaster for Jack personally, court-martialed, uh, Middlesex Guildhall, not dishonorably discharged, but um, there's enough evidence to suggest he was threatened with loss of pension. Um, and by this time, he'd lost Nellie, she had gone. So his source of funds that had been copious uh, had dried up. So I think the threat of losing his pension um, forced him to shut up. Uh, and he was tried under, you know, one of the many um, military acts that he, he could have been tried under uh, and was found guilty. So his military career was over, and that takes you to 19, late 1919. A very awkward, uncomfortable time for Churchill. Questions in the House, in the newspapers. Churchill tends to suggest that he'd lost his head, collapsed under battlefield fatigue, even a sort of genuine, gentle hint of cowardice uh, because of his, his withdrawal. But actually, you know, I can tell you as, as somebody who knows probably more about Kelly than anybody in the world, that just simply wasn't true. So how did Kelly's character shape his career in interpersonal relationships with others? In particular, particular the relationships with his commanders and soldiers and secondly his emotional attachments to women so okay in the in the first in the first case he he was um, uh, an awkward but necessary evil um in 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 the first world war i think if the bef could have had finished off the, the war by christmas there'd have been no need for the kellys of this world but the you know the uh, strategic uh, decisions and the and the tactical reverses that uh, both in gallipoli and on the western front uh, n- not only created huge losses 
losses and, and manpower losses, but it created a need for aggressive officering. It needed it created a need for, for, for officers who were prepared to take command and make decisions on the spot. And so Kelly, you know, was suited for, for that particular environment. And I think people like Lucas recognized that a, a, a an aggressive field commander in charge of a, a good unit, a, a crack battalion, was an, an incredible asset. And the, the cautious Sandhurst trained, uh, running by the book, waiting for the correct instruction to be delivered in the correct way, uh, has exactly got us where it got to in, uh, in the Boer War and, and, and in the South African Wars. That, that, that was not going to work uh, on the Western Front. You know, tactical decisions needed to be made and, and aggressive, quick actions needed to be fought. And people like Kelly were there for a necessary evil. And then, of course, for Jack, that was perfect. Um, as long as he had an understanding commander, he could uh, create decisive moments on the Western Front. And there were probably an increasing number of people like Jack reaching those sorts of positions, uh, a sort of middle rank, you know, major half colonel and so on, but probably never destined to go any further that were a necessary evil at the time. Uh, and, you know, there just wasn't the time to train, bring through, promote uh, a whole new generation of officers of that particular type. The majority of those had been killed or wounded in 1914. You know, the BF, you know, not only been defeated, it had lost its leadership. It, 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 it had lost its its field command. You know, the, the active command uh, level had, had already been withered and machine gunned in the in the retreat to the Marne. You know, that that's where the sacrifice of those men had happened. So um, militarily, uh, you know, the, the war provided Kelly with something uh, and it provided the British Army with something. So it's a mutual beneficial need. But of course, as soon as that need was over, uh, he, he was no longer required. And on the second point, emotionally, his character... Uh, well, he quite clearly found any sort of emotional ta- attachment very, very difficult. And I suspect that goes right back to his his early childhood. And, you know, if I put my faith in you, you're going to let me down. And we, we've all met people in our lives for whom commitment is difficult. And uh, there's a, a genuine insecurity about this mountain of a man when it comes to emotional attachment. Um, he, 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 the, the only battles he loses are with himself. And so what he tries to do is avoid them. So he runs. And uh, even in 1923, when uh, his wife has left him and they've been divorced, uh, she does incidentally come back and fund his political campaign. And she is incidentally the only one of three people at his funeral. Nelly was still there funding him, giving him money, keeping him going, uh, loving him, you know, right the way through to his death in 1931 from malaria, um, from big game hunting in Tanganyika or Bolivia, where he was cutting a road through the South American jungle or some other adventure she was still there but he wrote to dora who said are you going to deliver are you going to come and be my husband we have a daughter um and he he didn't and it did he didn't because he didn't want to he, he, he didn't because he couldn't i don't think he was capable of giving and the hurt that 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 brought if something's ripped away from you and that i think i'd like to think that that the answer to that goes back to the loss of his mother and his brother and the brutal brutal young life that created this uh, brutal man who was uh, you know, very soft underneath. Well, I think in the book I said, you know, a, a mountain of man with feet of clay. So what happened to Kelly after the war? Well, uh, where do I start? I mean, he, he he's uh, declared bankrupt in 1923. Uh, he writes to Dora and says, please, can I see my daughter uh, just once more? And she says, no. In fact, he never sees his daughter again. Um, he uh, wants a war in Turkey in 1923 with Kemal and he hopes
hopes for a war as a mercenary it doesn't happen so he goes to South America uh, as a well as a mercenary he was, he was responsible for shooting natives that got in the way of the building of the road and he happened to be out there in 1924 with Ernst Rome who had uh, run away from the 1923 Munich push to Bolivia um, and then he's a, a succession of various other bits and pieces he's back you know uh, on Poppy Day he's um, working for Toc H and supporting disabled peoples in 1926 General Strike he takes his shirt off and he's photographed and reported dragging a tram through the streets of London single-handedly with the ropes over his back um, and then you know he's found uh, not being able to pay his gas bill as I said he's in court for driving too fast and then for beating up a taxi driver who doubled his fare and it goes on you know uh, it, it, it's a it's a wild ride until about 1929 30 when after the obviously the great Dep- the the great depression well not after the great depression during the great depression um he's down on the south coast in bogner looking after king george v's house where king george v was sent while he had his uh, period of incapacitation you know george, king george had this um brother we, we don't quite know the facts obviously foggy uh, breakdown uh, mental break and kelly's down there sort of partly as house bodyguard potentially companion um and so i don't he'd met george obviously because george v had, had delivered his victoria cross presented the cross so they they reunite um and there's a certain symmetry there that uh, you know both both men had terrible tempers and experienced difficult times in their personal relationships and who knows maybe they sat in the rose garden and and chatted while he was down there that house incidentally was bulldozed um soon after george left to stop it being a tourist attraction. um but anyway the Kelly was down there and then in 1931 he's sorry 1930 his big game hunting in Tanganyika and I think that's probably where he he caught malaria and it's malaria that killed him and um, just as a matter of interest he, this man has crossed my path so many times through chance uh, you know, not only am I sitting here 10 miles from Crowborough Camp where he was running around but when I worked in London uh, for about 10 years I had not realised while I was doing all this research that he died on the parallel street to where I live at um, it's <laughs> unbelievable really that I hadn't you know bothered to get around to well where actually is Prince's Street oh uh, it's next door to Exhibition Road where I lived on Exhibition Road in London uh, and uh, he died in a nursing home which was on the parallel road but m- more than that when I was uh, before that incarnation I, I was um, head teacher down in Devon and uh, I had a house in a, in a small village and when the the family uh, of the daughter of Dora so there's Dora the, the, the mistress the daughter was Angela Angela lived to her 80 into her 80s the family of, of Angela found out I was writing this book got in touch with me they, they live in in Hook um, and said oh we've got book, we've got letters we've got photographs and we've got the photograph that uh, Angela had on her desk all her life of her father and she used to say my father won the Victoria Cross but she never knew who he was her mother took the the failure of Jack to turn up you know in her life permanently uh, so badly that she never revealed to the daughter um, who her father was but the family were able to then put put two and two together interestingly Angela uh, lived in Devon in the same village and she was two streets away from where I lived during the whole time that I was in Devon researching this book his daughter was there 
in front of me we probably passed on the street um you know and i probably went past her door dozens and dozens of times so i know exactly where she lived i could have hit a cricket ball if i'd hit it in the middle um into her garden really from my garden uh you know you tell me how 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 that can happen um but there we are dora dora's daughter angela she died never knowing who her father was um and i'd been researching her father um at 200 yards well that would have been a big cricket you get the idea so my penultimate question is what projects are you currently working on well uh i'm moving away from the great war uh i also have an interest in the second world war and the eastern front and leadership so uh i'm now working on another similar book to kelly in so far it's a biography um but it's about uh, one of hitler's um most talented uh, strategic generals uh, from the eastern front called herman bulk and uh, ambly are publishing this uh, next summer uh, it's going to have a title something like hitler's forgotten field marshal um and it's another guy a bit like kelly who's been airbrushed from history but for very very different reasons uh than than kelly was the reason why he he was thought of as that black sheep obviously all goes back to his character and that court martial whereas this particular uh, subject is is uh, is a self-imposed exile a different thing altogether but i have found him a fascinating character i like interesting people so he's he's come up he's so that that is my current project is out next year and in parallel to that i'm writing i'm hoping to write a little book of short where can people find out more about yourself and your work well i think i would recommend they buy the book quite frankly um i'm sure all, all your contributors say the same thing but really in, in short they're, they're obviously it's on wikipedia and so on but i mean they're they're terribly brief uh, and i feel all, it would be quite nice to get it all online i suppose but uh not it's not for me to do but uh you know the, the book is out there I, I i have been told it's a, a good read it's not too turgid and stodgy so that's the best place to find out a little bit more about Jack. Um, I do have one question for your listeners, though, uh, and I, uh, I don't know how they they would contact you. You're now going to curse me for letting you be overwhelmed by responses. But uh, Jack's grave is at Brookwood. Um, it's not on the main military cemetery. Um, he was not allowed to be buried on the military cemetery. Now, anybody that knows Brookwood, know there's about a dozen Victoria Cross winners there. The rest of them t- tend to all be sort of clustered fairly well together. Jack's is not. He's underneath a yew tree, right out there, almost on the edge. You, you, he's quite hard to find. Uh, his grave was restored a few years back to this sort of lottery funding thing by this group of well-intentioned people who went around restoring these sorts of because he was in disrepair. I, I went there a number of times and his you, you could barely read uh, his, his, his gravestone. It was covered in ivy, mould and so on. You could only just see the Victoria Cross if you scraped it off with a pen. And I used to think at the time, well, that's a very sad end for this this sort of pretty heroic figure. And I, I had it in mind one day to restore it. Anyway, it was done. Uh, so apart from the fact that he's, you know, even in death, uh, blackballed, if you like, um, poppies and flowers turn up every year. And according to the people that own Brookwood, and I, Brookwood, you may not know, is privately owned, even though it's vast. And they, they they say, yeah, oh, yeah, these flowers keep turning up. We don't know who, we don't know when. You can tell it's his grave because it's huge. I mean, you know, it's not like your normal grave. It's got an extra two feet in terms of size to get him in there, I suppose. Um, but walking from the entrance or the car park at Brookwood, if anybody's been uh, across to... Uh, Jack's grave. You walk in a 45 degree angle across a vast open area of, of grassland and the, the cemetery's off to your left and wraps around these fields. But this big grass area, you walk in a diagonal towards, it's almost 
empty save one gravestone of a I think he's a 19 or 20 year old man soldier second Hampshire's which is the composite battalion that that Jack commanded in North Russia died of his wounds uh, in the summer of 1919 now this has got to be somebody that came back when Jack from North Russia because that expedition wasn't out there very long it was withdrawn within a couple of months because of the great fuss that was made about it Churchill obviously told Ironside get out as quick as you can I don't care if the Russians get the guns just just come back um this 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 young man must have died of his wounds obviously somewhere close to Brook in the same battalion that Jack commanded at exactly the same time that Jack would have come back from Russia apart from the fact that that's just sort of another stunning twist of fate that I've come across somebody's grave. what's it doing in the middle of Brookwood Cemetery on its own and any answers please contact me via the WFA <laughs> press uh, email address and we can maybe get another podcast on that at a future date um Philip thank you very much for your time that was fantastic okay I'm very grateful for you for asking and You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>